Hey folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 605 of the Survival Podcast. It is February 14th, 2011, and what does that mean? That means that if you did not get something for your significant other guys... You are wrong, and you will probably pay the price for it, and I feel bad, because I've always reminded you guys a couple days in advance, I don't think I did it this year, so I'm sorry. So if you have to be a last-minute run out to the store and get something, do it. It pays dividends. It's like storing food, folks. It really is. It pays dividends long-term, and when your wife or your girlfriend says, I don't need anything for Valentine's Day, that means you better get me something for Valentine's Day. I will remember it if you don't. Okay, public service announcement for the show done. Let's get into the doing actually doing the show today. And it's a Monday, so that means we're doing a show all about you. These are all emails that have come to me, sent to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Again, my personal email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put the term question for Jack in the subject line. P- post your question and uh, or your article you want me to comment on. And I'll say this again, because uh, I keep getting books. It, don't write me a book. If you do feel the compulsion to write me a book, you better get out what you want to make a point with in about two sentences or less. And then give me all the back information, background information you want after that. I want to put this in perspective for you. I don't want to sound like I'm complaining here or anything, because I'm not. But I just want to, I just want you to understand the logistics I deal with. I get about somewhere between three and six hundred legitimate emails a day. Legitimate emails, not just these emails, but from customers and from people that want me to comment on something and all of the stuff together, about three to six hundred a day. Let's leave it at three hundred. If I spend two minutes on an email, and I spend two minutes on every legitimate email, we go at the low end of 300, uh, that's 600 minutes. That's 10 hours. On a day with 600, that would be 20 hours just giving each email two minutes of time. So you can see if you want to get through my screening process, the more quick and direct to the point you can be, the better option, the better chances you have of getting there. I simply can't answer them all anymore. When I started out, I answered every email. Um, I try to do as many as I can on the show, folks. I do what I can. Again, I'm not complaining here. I love the problem, but it is a problem, and I can't do them all. And if your email starts out with uh, the background about your grandfather, and your question is buried somewhere in six paragraphs, I'm probably going to have to filter it out. It's not that I want to. Logistically, I have no choice. Hopefully, that makes sense. So the right way to send in one of these questions, Jack, I have a question, which is boom, 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 done, question mark, right? And then here's some background information. So if I pick your question, now I can go in and choose how much background information I need. Uh, or if it's an article, I found this article about, I thought it was interesting because, period, link. And then any other information you want following that. Just trying to give you guys a heads up on that. Let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping and get into your emails. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Emergency Essentials. I love Emergency Essentials. I love getting their catalog. It's like what a lot of people on the forum call it prepper porn. You know, it's like you just look through there and go, I want this and I want that. And they just have so much cool stuff. But where they really excel is large amounts of long-term food storage stuff. Check out Emergency Essentials. Make sure you're getting their catalog. 
bookmark their website. And by the way, they have a tremendous amount of information uh, in their kind of knowledge center area as well you'll want to check out. Really glad to have them as a sponsor. Uh, they just re-signed up for another quarter, so they're going to stick around. They like the results they see from advertising here. And that means you guys must like them, because if you don't like a sponsor, they're not going to stick around. So I think we have a good match there. Remember, check them out today, Emergency Essentials. Uh, next up today, KnifeKits.com. What I like about knife kits is even a novice like me can make his own custom knife. If you're kind of like at the mode where, where I am with knife making, I know how to sharpen things and I know some basic fitting and finish and stuff like that. You can buy kind of a kit, you know? Just kind of a kit that's kind of all ready to go and maybe you select different handle material or whatever, but it's pretty much everything you need and it's kind of done and you're just kind of doing the final fit and finish on the handle and maybe doing the finish work on the handle material depending on what it is and sharpening the blade and maybe polishing things but that's it or if you are a master bladesmith and these raw materials you can get anything you're looking for at knife kits including mammoth tusk yeah you can get mammoth tusk material for knife handles at knifekits.com and call me crazy but someday I'd like a knife made with mammoth tusk handle I don't know why, it just kind of hit me when I saw it there. I'd like that. Not really a uh, emergency prep, but certainly one of those things in the nice-to-have categories. Check out KnifeKits.com today. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Um, and uh, there's just a ton of benefit there. I'll leave it at that today. I don't want to go too long on the housekeeping. I do have one quick announcement. I will be going up to the Bug Out location Thursday. Uh, there'll definitely be a show Thursday. I will try to make sure there's a show Friday. I'm going to do a listener call show tomorrow. Then I'll wait till Friday to do it. We're way backlogged on calls due to my laryngitis, and we had a holiday backup way back a month and a half ago, and everything else. So I'm definitely going to get caught up on some of your calls this week. There may be two call shows this week, even if there isn't a show Friday. If my voice holds out, and I can get the extra show done, I will. And if my voice holds out, but not enough to do the extra show. What I'll do is I'm actually probably going to maybe do uh, go back to throw back to the old days, take the recorder with me, and maybe do a couple episodes from the road on my way up to the bug out location. And my AT&T card is sufficient for uploading audio files. So there might be some remotely published shows on Friday or Monday um, from the bug out location. Uh, from the road on the way to the bug out location. That would be kind of cool. But I gotta go up there. We're having carpeting put in and having some new, uh, new washer and dryer delivered. So I gotta go up there and take care of that and then I'll be back here and rock it on until we uh, get out of here permanently. So that's a little longer than I like to do usually, but hey, you know, sometimes I've got information I have to hand out to you guys and, uh, that was the case today. So let's go ahead and take the uh, first email. Uh, here's an interesting one. It's kind of a gardening one. It says, hey, Jack, Paul from Northern Maine. Sorry for not including my last name. I don't need your last name, Paul. Paul from Northern Maine says, I'd love to hear your thoughts on other useful plants that can winter inside or be reestablished in the garden next spring. Are there any useful houseplants that can be effectively grown or wintered inside? Uh, more info. See, this is the way to do your question, folks. So he got me his question. Now i got to know what, what does he mean. I can go find out. I currently winter my peppers, red, yellow, jalapenos inside. Great success. It's amazing how fast these perennials take off in the spring once I put them back in the ground. Even after cutting them back aggressively, I actually bought six of my red pepper plants inside, which produce still on the plant in a five-gallon pail. I picked the last pepper in early December, nice and red. I guess it makes sense. But this past summer, my older pepper plants outperformed new plants by 300%. Much sweeter, higher yield, etc. So, basically, he's doing this with peppers. He take, This is what he's talking about, guys. Most people, you plant your peppers in the ground. You start out with this little bitty plant. 
And then by fall, it's this big, beautiful bush. And you're just picking all these peppers off it, and you're all happy. And then the first frost comes and it dies. And you're like, that's just the way a pepper works. Well, it's not the way a pepper works. A pepper is a perennial. Most people don't know this because in North America, just about anywhere you would be, they're not a perennial. The frost comes and they die. They don't have to die, though. It's not like a, a cucumber. A cucumber is a true annual. No matter what the temperature's like, eventually a cucumber vine will die. doesn't matter how warm or cold it is. It will eventually be like, okay, I'm done. And it's, it's, I hope I've produced enough cucumbers and seeds that there's a couple new vines, but I'm done. That's my cycle. It's its life expectancy. Peppers, not so much. They are a perennial. Tomatoes are technically a perennial, but a little bit more difficult. So here's another one you can try. With your indeterminate tomato varieties. A determinate variety of tomato will grow to a certain height and stop. It'll become like a bush, and it'll stop growing. It doesn't really sprawl much once it's reached maturity. Indeterminates will keep growing and growing, and there's... Really no theoretical limit on how much growing they can do, because only in, in domestic production do we stake them up and all. Tomatoes naturally grows this trellising vine. They just flow across the ground. And what happens is the vine further down, you know, if it gets into the dirt, will actually set roots. And so it has it can expand its root system with its plant size. So tomatoes have no theoretical, indeterminate tomatoes have no theoretical limit. There's real limits, but there's no theoretical limit on how massive a plant could become. You could use this to your advantage. What you do is you take your suckering shoots that come off your main trunk of your indeterminate tomato varieties. Right, you leave a couple of them come up right before it's going to freeze. And a day or two before the freeze, you go out and you cut your sucker plants, your vines. You put them into potting soil, you keep them moist, and into a, like, you, they need a little bit of light, but not very much. You bring them in the house, and they'll root in the soil. And you've got this little tomato plant. And you keep that in your greenhouse or inside a sunny window throughout the winter period. And by the time you're ready to put it, and you need a big pot for this, because they're going to get very large in that period of time. By the time it's safe to put your plants outside, you can pot this huge tomato plant that came from last year, and it's a clone straight into the ground. So there's another one that you can do along those ways. And those are really the only two that I really know about. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do that are like recycling vegetables. Do you know that if you take, let's say, spring onion or bunching onion, your little tiny onions, you know the little part with the roots hanging on it? You cut that off. You cut about half an inch of that off. And then you use the white part all the way up into the green part, chopped it up as normal. But you give up that little, that first little piece of the onion, you plant that in the ground, grows right back into another spring onion. Never-ending onion. You can call it that if you want to. I think that's what Johnny Max called it when he was doing it in his aquaponics system. You can do that in the ground. So there's a lot of things you can do like that. Another one I recently found out about is called choco, choco uh, also known as cheoti. Squash is what it's called. It's not really a squash, though. Um, this is a perennial that you can grow up into about zone 7. And if you want to do this, you can't buy seeds. You need the whole squash-looking thing. And a lot of markets in the south here, you'll find it. Even at, like, Kroger, I've found them. The Chayote squash, or Chocho, Choco, I'm sorry. And there's a lot of other names for them. They're originally from Mexico. You plant the entire fruit. So you take the fruit, and when, it, when you're past all danger of frost, you plant it in the ground. Or you can kind of store it in a way that will cause it to sprout indoors. Um, before it's safe to put it outside to give its first year growing a really good start. 
And then you plant the whole fruit with the seed sprouting through it into the ground. And you grow this huge vine. And it can grow up to 30 feet long. And you trellis it somewhere so that it hangs down, hangs down from above like a climber in your permaculture system. And you can get up to 100 Chayote squashes, if you want to call them squashes, they're more, they're also called a vegetable pear is another nickname for them. And you get those and you, you use them. And you can use them from when they're little tiny to great big and use them for different things. Stuff I, more than I can go into today. But, since this is a tr sort of a tropical plant from Mexico native, uh, it can't handle frost. So what happens when it freezes? The, the vine dies. You could even leave the vine up in the, in the trellis and let the fruit hang in the cold as long as it's not too cold. You know, just occasional frostings early on, and let it cold store outside. Eventually, you have to pick it and bring it in. Stores very well, though. You cut the vine to the ground, and then you mulch the hell out of the root system. Put about six to eight inches of mulch on top of the root system, and uh, next year, that vine will grow right back for you. I don't know how far north you can pull that off, and you need at least 110 days of growing season to get fruit. So you need a long growing season. That's another one. Uh, but there's a lot of other things you can do. It's all a matter of our creativity. Those are just some ideas I have. Let's go ahead and take your next one. Here's a great one, and I have my own version of this that I'll give you after I give you a Yankee, Yankee Peddler's uh, version. So it says, hi, Jack. Uh, never gets old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it never gets old. Yeah, it's old already. Anyway, just had something I thought would be cool to pass on to you and all my prepping brethren. Some people, especially those who have never served in the military, have a hard time estimating distance. I drive around a lot for work, and just to keep myself sharp on my range-finding skills, I practice with my GPS. My GPS unit will tell me to turn in, say, 500 yards. I'll estimate the distance of an object before said turn, a tree, a mailbox, or something, and subtract how many yards I think it should be, say, 200. Well, then my GPS should read about 300 yards by the time I hit that point. I do this 50 times a day or more when I'm bored, and I have no more podcasts to listen to keep up the great work. Uh, again, Yankee Peddler from the forum. Um, I like that. It's not something... My GPS doesn't really work that way, so it's not something I do. Um, but I do find myself constantly estimating ranges. And this goes back to when I was a young man and did a lot more hunting than I do today. Uh, grouse, pheasant, squirrel, deer, you name it, you'd be out there. And whenever I was still hunting, which means you're walking slowly and, and taking things in. It's kind of like a stalk when there's no muddy there. So it's like a, a spot and stalk is another way you call this. So whenever I'm still hunting or just walking through places in the woods hunting, I would constantly pick things out. And I'd look at a tree or a blow down or whatever and say, it's about 120 yards. And then in my head, as I continued on with my hunting or my walking, I would count my footsteps, roughly a yard a step. And I would know, okay, it was right on 120, it was 130, it was 150. And you get better and better the more you do this. What I like about doing it on foot and using your paces is most of us don't have perfectly marked out ranges if we're kind of self-policing. Uh, so when we mark out 100 yards to shoot with our rifle, we pace off 100 yards. So even if it's not technically 100 yards, it's the 100 yards we're, we're zeroing to. When we pace off 250, same thing. Uh, the other thing is it is pretty close. The average man, if you, especially the longer the distance, the more accurate it'll become with the variations in your step when it averages out about a yard a step. And if you pace some measured distances, actually measure out with a ruler 10 yards, you could train yourself to pace and, and to be very, very accurate with your pacing. Um, so those are skills where I don't need a tool to be able to determine ranges. It's the way it's actually done in the field. Uh, if I don't have a, a you know digital range finder or a GPS to work with, the other thing is when you're on foot, 
unlike being in a street where everything's kind of uniform. When you're when you're driving down a road, a mailbox is a mailbox is a mailbox. A tree, even if it's a tree that's bigger or smaller than you think, because there's mailboxes and billboards and cars around, it's very easy for you to know how big that tree really is. Scale doesn't mess with you on the, on a highway system. When you're in the woods doing this, you look and you see a, a stand of trees in the distance, and it can look 250 yards away, but if you're somewhere with big clearings out west, those trees might be huge, and they might be close to a thousand yards away. And it makes you learn to train your eye to do more than just look at the object and its relative size. It makes you start to actually peel distances out in your mind. Where you, you look at the ground and you go, that's 10 yards, so there's 20. There's 20, so there's 40. There's 40, so there's 80. Well, then that's 100. There's 100 yards out in my head. How far is this object beyond that? And, and I, I really think it's a great skill. And don't just try to estimate things that are 300 yards out. Knowing the distance is 30 yards or 40 yards is everything when you're a bow hunter. There's certain points with your bow, if you become intimately knowledge with its shooting, where three or four yards of, of misjudging changes the sight pin that you're using. It can have a dramatic effect on the impact of your arrow. So I think we need to be doing this not just with the very long distances, but with short distances as well. And it's a great thing for kids. When you go on a hike, hey, how far do we think that is? Let the kids guess. You guess. Play a game. And then dad or dad or mom paces it off because you got the full-size steps. Uh, great idea. Great email there from Yankee Peddler. Thanks for that one. Let's take another one. Um, this next one says, uh, this is from Brent Erner, okay to use name, in Prince Edward Island. So he's a Canadian up there, and he says, uh, Could you address concerns, thoughts, updates on the impact of the current storm on your bug-out uh, new home location? So this is from a, a week and a half ago, I guess, and we had all this uh, snow and ice down here. Well, honestly, the impact is nothing. Um, we're talking about a snowfall and ice amount down here that um, most of the northern states would laugh at. The only thing that causes it to be an issue is that our, you know, our street departments, our, our road departments are not equipped to deal with it because it's so infrequent that financially it doesn't make them sense for them to have a fleet of snowplows. Though, if uh, global cooling continues, the real thing that's going on, uh, for any further length of time, maybe it will. Who knows? But uh, right now it just doesn't make sense. So it, uh, it, it really had zero impact at all. I mean, we weren't even there, so that's even less of an impact. About the only thing that I worry about, up at my bug out location when we're not there with the weather um, is the, what the cold is freezing of the well pump we have a very simple solution to that we obviously to run the pump there has to be electricity uh, out at the well pump and we have backup power to the well pump as well so what we've done is we have two of those great big um, like clamp on uh, light lamps you just put an incandescent bulb in the center of them and they're like a big metal reflector you get them for about three or four bucks at like Walmart any auto parts store has them in the hardware section so you get a big like a butterfly clamp on one side and this reflector this you know tin reflector pointing down and I got two of them one on each side inside the well pump house pointed right at the well put a bulb in them you get a thermostat that says turn these lights on whenever the temperature goes below 40 degrees. Plug that into the outlet. The outlet's powered by a backup system as well. So when the temperature goes below 40 degrees, the lights come on in the well pump house. And that way there's enough incandescent light heat in there 
that I have no danger of the pump freezing. The well house is probably good enough, but this is my backup and my redundancy. Um, other than that, no real effect at all. When we're there, if we have a big ice storm or a big snowstorm, um, we're probably stuck until it melts some. I mean, that's all there is to it. We're way up in the hills. They're never, even, you know, hot springs area, they're going to be better about cleaning the roads up than they are down here. But the big deal in the south isn't snow, it's ice. We get a lot of ice when you guys up north get snow. And ice, it doesn't matter how well you know how to drive, it doesn't matter at all. The only thing that's going to make ice go away is salt. And they're, they're real hesitant to use the salt because of the damage it does on the road. So the only other thing that makes ice go away is, is sunlight. So if we get a big ice storm, we could be stuck at the bug out location for a couple weeks or more. Since we're prepared to be either stuck there for six months to a year if we have to be, um, no harm, no foul, no problem. So that's that's our view of the storm. Let's go take another one. Okay, this one is an email exchange I had with a listener asking him basically for some advice. I, I've i really had a hard time with this. this guy, we call this guy John. That's his first name, and that's all I'm going to give on him. But John was asking me about this video called The End of America put out by Porter Stansbury, and I briefly talked about it in the past. And I've been real hesitant to say the negative things I think about Porter Stansbury in this freaking video. And I've had some people, and anybody that's emailed me, I've given you my honest opinion, which is I think Porter Stansberry is a freaking thief, and he doesn't give a damn about helping anybody, and he knows that this, this market segment, this prepper market segment, this, this survivalist market segment is hot right now. So he's putting, he's using the video to market the same bullshit he's always marketed, which is which stocks to buy, which stocks to short, what to invest in, what to hold, what to buy, what to sell. His advice is very expensive and often highly inaccurate. And I said that I went on to some forums where people had purchased some of his programs that are like $6,000 a year programs and said basically, I lost every trade I made on this guy's recommendations. So I got some emails back from some people saying things like, I can't believe you're so hard on this guy. He's basically saying the same things you are. Oh. And John was good enough to steer me right and say, Jack, be yourself and call a spade a spade and say to people what you really think of this guy because he's being advertised like crazy all over conventional radio. People are listening to what he's saying. I, John basically listened to it himself and thought that maybe he, you know, this guy's on to something. And here's the reality. Just because somebody says something that's true, it doesn't make everything that follows also true. And my big problem with people like Stansberry and these fear-based videos is they put these timelines on them, 18 months and the currency will collapse. Well, when 18 months happens and our currency has not yet collapsed, where will Porter Stansberry be on that statement? He'll be publishing another video telling you it's 18 more months away. He'll never address being wrong. And when I told this guy he was a thief, he went out and did some research for me. He sent me a couple links. I'll put in today's uh, show notes for you. But basically, Porter Stansberry has been um, gone after multiple times by the United States District Court of Maryland for insider training and, def and fraud. And I'm just gonna—I'm not gonna say too much more on this, um, but I'm gonna put the links, and you can decide for yourself. But I do not like what this guy's doing. I don't care that he might be talking 70% truth or even 90% truth. When someone is a thief and a liar, I care about the 10 or the 5%. They're actually asking you to do something like give them money. 
So do I think that his video is completely inaccurate and totally misleading? No. Do I think it's been completely designed to paint a more dire picture than truly exists with the hope that after watching it, you will give him your money in return for advice that has already been declared fraudulent and he's already been prosecuted for making fraudulent advice? Yes, I do. And that's why I don't think you should bother listening to this crap. And I think you should understand that when somebody sells to you based on fear, you need to be instantly skeptical in what they're doing. It is not the same thing I'm saying. For the, the few of you who have emailed me and said, oh, this is such a similar message to yours. No, it's not. My message is positive. My message is one of hope. My message is, yeah, bad stuff happens, but we don't have to take it lying down. My message is, I don't know if the currency will collapse in the next 18 months, and I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that I do. My message is the currency could collapse like it has five times. Five times since 1900. And an average American may never even realize that's what happened. My message is, buying gold may not fix your problem. It may help, it may not. I don't know. We need a very broad, diversified approach, and the focus is internal on you and me. We take care of ourselves, and we take care of our community, and we take care of our family. His message is, the whole U.S. system is ending completely on this day, which, trust me folks, it will come and go, and, and it will be ignored, and your solution is to give me your money, and I'll tell you how to profit from it. Those are two very, very different messages. And if you want to believe this guy, if you want to take his advice, if you want to buy his products, go ahead. Do it with the knowledge I gave you. Now, I'm going to tell you the other side of the story. He's not always wrong. I actually am a subscriber to his 12% letter, where I've got a, what I've paid for. To, to, to put my money where, you know, let's see what the guy has. I've gotten some advice from him that's relatively good advice. It's also advice that you could get anywhere in any public discussion anywhere. And, and the facts are out there publicly available. I've also seen some advice that I've said, let's see what would happen if I take that advice. And looked at it six months later and I would have lost my ass. So my point is, when you look at any of these things like this, and I don't care if it's on Discovery Channel or on the Internet or on ABC, just because something sounds like what you want to hear doesn't mean that the totality of it or its aims or its objectives is congruent with your objectives and with your life and with your well-being. Personally, that's how I feel about Porter Stansberry. He's a guy trying to make a buck. And I have no problem with a guy trying to make a buck. But I think at this point, he's using fear to sell a product that just stops selling on its own merits. And I don't want to see people getting hurt with it. Now, you can write me all you want say, oh, I took his advice and blah, blah, blah. You, I'll tell you right now, if you're going to tell me you took Porter Stansberry's advice and you made money, I'm going to tell you, send me proof. Send me, send me proof of your trade executions. Show me where he made the recommendation and show me your sell and show me your profit. If you can't show me that, you're full of shit. Because that's real. That's brass tacks. That's not, oh, he said to get out of the market and I got out of the market. Hell, I told you that. That was there for anybody to see. This guy's selling you a product for six grand, some of his products for 12 grand a year? It better be concrete. And if it ain't, 
that I'm calling a spade a spade and I'm calling a thief a thief. I personally feel that the guy's ripping off the American people. And I was real hesitant to say that on the air. Because he is in the same demographic. I know he's on Alex Jones all the time. And I have no axe to grind with Alex. I think there's 10% of Alex that's out there in freaking La La Land. But there's some good solid stuff there too. And his goal and my goal are not that far off. But it bugs me that he's tied in with a guy like that. But not enough to bash him. But the guy, you if you give that man a dollar, you did it against my recommendation. That's all I could say. Let's go ahead and take another one. Okay, here's the next question. Um, this comes from Scott. Scott says, love the show, Jack. If you ever get stuck in Memphis, you have a place to bug in. Question for your show. With all the seeds out there, what would be a good list of no-brainer seeds? Easy to grow crops, not much to maintain, etc., etc. The wife and I want a good stash of seeds, but don't know what to, but don't want to pretend we know all about gardening. We want seeds to give us a chance at success if it ever came to it. We keep educating ourselves, but at the same time, we realize that we have our limitations under stressful circumstances. We want the best odds for food on our table that came down to it. Thanks for what you do. Okay, Scott, you're not going to like my answer, at least not all of my answer. Okay, what I'm going to tell you is you can store the easiest to grow seeds in the world, but if your philosophy is I have the seeds in case it comes down to it and you're not growing today, if it comes down to it, you're not going to get shit out of the ground. I mean, that's I can't be any more blunt, but I owe it to you to be that blunt. Storing seeds without growing crops is about as pointless as an endeavor as a human being can make. Now, if you're doing it to sell them or barter them, whatever, maybe, and it's a big maybe. I don't care what you're growing. When you put seed in the ground at your location, under your unique circumstances, you're going to have successes and failures. Now, don't don't fret. I'm going to give you some stuff that, that will fit your definition. But i got to say this first. There is the attitude of, and I'm going to, there's so many people doing this now. And this is why there's people out there selling seed banks. And they can be good or bad depending on their use, right? The person's not bad because they're selling a seed bank. Jeff, the Berkey guy's got a seed bank available now. I'm going to review it this week, try to get it on YouTube for you. There's nothing wrong with it. But the mentality of I'll just have the seeds and if I ever need them, I'll grow them, it ain't going to work. First of all, like the fastest growing thing you can grow is a radish, and that's like three weeks. And radishes don't have a lot of calories, and you're not going to live on radishes. And if you have, it comes down to it, you wait three weeks for a radish, man, you got a problem. Uh, you're in Memphis, so it gets cold there right now. If you're trying to grow right now without a greenhouse or a coal frame, you're not going to grow much of anything from seed. It's too cold. It won't germinate. Even a plant that could survive right now, like kale. You put the kale seed in the ground in February, it's not going to sprout until the soil warms up. Or if it does germinate, it's going to take 30 days to germinate. So my point is you've got to grow stuff today if you're going to rely on it tomorrow at all. And if you don't, it's probably not worth storing seeds. I hate to put it that way. But look at look at your time to harvest. Squash, 110 days or more. You know, winter squashes. Corn, 80 to 110 days, depending on variety. Tomatoes, you're looking at 6 to 10 weeks from transplant. So you're starting your seeds, you're looking at another 4 to 6 to 8 weeks to get a few before you get into big production. It just doesn't work unless you're training yourself on the skill set and having the reserve in seed to grow. Now, I hate 
I hate being that way, man. I, I'm really sorry, Scott, but I got I got I had to put it that way. Now let me try to answer the, the the basics of your question. The best thing that you can store are seeds that grow fast and have ease of growth and have limited needs as far as inputs. So like beans. Beans are probably the greatest thing you can store. And you can store literally tons. I'm quite literally mean tons of beans. And the beauty of storing beans is you have seed and food. You can say the same thing about grain, but grain is a lot harder to grow on a small scale. So what I'm saying is if you have a large stockpile of beans, you also have a large stockpile of seeds. Now you got to get the right source to make that work. But even in just small amounts, beans are going to be one of the best things you can store. Why? Well, they fix nitrogen. That means they provide to a large degree their own fertilizer and, in fact, are even adversely affected by uh, a lot of synthetic fertilizers. Greens are, are great to store because they add nutrition and diversity and fiber to the diet. So lettuces, kales, uh, all of that, anything that's a green. And you want greens that will do well in summer and greens that will do well in winter. And one of the great things about those is if you think about this, you can store 10,000 lettuce seeds um, in, in, a, in a single little small envelope. So you can store a lot of seed. And if you let lettuce go to seed, it, one plant produces a tremendous amount of seed. Um, spinach is good, but it's hard to get seed out of in a place without a, a long, cool growing season. Generally what happens is when it bolts, it doesn't seed very well in a lot of the south. You, you can, but it, it can be tough. Um, but the things that you know don't make a lot of sense to store a lot of seed for are things like broccoli. Very low in calories, long time to grow. Great plant, grow it in my garden every year. But if you're trying to feed yourself, it's kind of rough. Uh, potatoes, storing potatoes that have not been treated uh, with a sprouting uh, retardant. Uh, that means you have food and you have something you can grow relatively quickly. Um, you know, you can look at buying large amounts of, of baby onions, uh, basically onion sets, and, and those could be grown quickly. But the reality is. You won't be able to answer the question of what's easy to grow in your area until you start growing things now. And I could have just answered this question with, you know, there's a ton of articles online that say the 18 easiest crops to grow in the United States. You know, and it's going to be beets and beans and, and, and tomatoes. and But the reality is that's not fair to you because you're asking a legitimate question, which the real question is, how do we provide a way to feed ourselves? If it, in your own words, if it comes down to it, you feed yourself today and you train yourself so that you're equipped to feed yourself tomorrow. Now, that doesn't mean you have to have a subsistence garden today, but it means you have to have a small, reasonable, productive garden today. And the other thing I would tell you, if you're really wanting to have food for the future, focus on perennials, fruits, nuts, vines, grapevines, kiwi vines, apple trees, Things that are going to come back year after year after year and be very reliable once established. Get that stuff established today. What you could do with two grapevines, two kiwi vines, and a couple apple trees and a couple nut trees is unbelievable production compared to what a small uh, uh, you know, kitchen garden will ever do for you. Now, it's kind of a, a, a huge abundance. You need to figure out a way to preserve it and all. But in a shit at the fan, even if you're tired of eating apples, you have a barter commodity. It's going to be very valuable in that long-term disaster. So those are my thoughts on that. Sorry I couldn't just give you a list of 18 items or something like that. I wanted to give you the truth. That's what people expect here. 
This one's kind of interesting. It's kind of like a Y2K thing all over again, except it's more real than Y2K ever was, but less less of a problem than Y2K was ever purported to be. And everybody seems to see it that way right now. But here's the article. It's on the American Dream, or End of the American Dream uh, blog. And it says, uh, uh-oh, the Internet's about to run out of IP addresses. And... Um, I'll give you the short story, and I'll give you a link to the article if you want to read it. Basically, whenever you go to a website, and every computer and every domain has something called an IP address, or Internet Protocol Address. And it's made up of a series of numbers separated by periods. So uh, an example could be 11.22.333.44 would be an example of an IP address. So there's only so many uh, IP addresses that can be created in that structure. And I guess when they came up with the original protocol, which was IPv4, um, they didn't really understand how big this internet thing was going to be. So sometime later this year, uh, we're going to run out of IP addresses. That means that we don't have a place, like when somebody wants a new website or a new web server or to expand the internet at all, there's no more numbers left. It's like running out of phone numbers, except you can't just add a new area code. In fact, if you look back at the history of the phone system, the area code was part of a solution. You know, at one time, people just had, you know, a, a five-digit number anywhere. And he was like, I need Washington 4359 or whatever it was. You know, you called an operator. Well, as the system became more automated, they started to run out of exchanges. And they expanded the phone number to its current thing, and then they add, you know, added area codes to it, and we have our current system. And even now... Cities, individual cities, run out and have to add area codes. And there's a theoretical limit to that. We're not in danger of with the phone system. In fact, now it's in decline because so many people are getting rid of home phones and all. What put big pressure was everybody having a cell phone and a home phone. Well, now the home phones are dying off. And uh, But the, the, this, this IP, Internet Protocol thing is a big different story. You think about every device out there that's connected to the Internet has an IP address. So this new system uh, would be uh, totally different. And the problem is there's no real easy way to create a patch so that your computer will be able to use the new system. So it's going to be on um, the ISPs, Internet Service Providers, to handle it with their routing and things like that. I think they'll actually do a pretty good job with it. I think this is a little bit of uh, alarmism going around right now about it. And uh, I think it's... Uh, I think it's something we don't really need to worry about, but it is interesting, and it does say something about the growth of the Internet and the growth of things in general. The nice thing is this new protocol, um, we're going to have to add about 150 billion people to the planet to run this one out. Um, the IP addresses under the new protocol are much longer with a hell of a lot more variable available. And um, It's not just numbers, it's alphanumeric, and it is uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, Six, seven brackets versus four. Um, that, that will be a permanent solution and stuff will just get upgraded. More importantly, what I, what I wanted to point out was something that the, uh, the, the guy that wrote me pointed out, that, that, uh, Devin, who sent me this article pointed out. This is also check out Tal Jones's reply to Susan in the comments. Uh, Susan stated, quote, start stocking up on gold people, do it yesterday, end quote. And Tal Jones responds with sigh, can you eat gold? Can you keep you warm? Can gold provide liquid? 
Do you think that if things really break down, your masters will simply allow you to keep your gold? They would simply make it illegal to own gold and confiscate it from you. They've done it before, you know. Gold is not the answer. People, in all capitals, are the answer. We need communities of free-thinking people able to work together for a common goal. The old paradigm is dying. Stop clinging on to yesterday's solutions and think ahead. Free your minds. Um, I agree with Tao in principle, but maybe not in practice. In other words, I think owning gold and silver is a good freaking idea right now. But everything else she said, I completely agree with. What she seems to be objecting to, and if I could listen to Tao, Adam Tao could be a, a, a man, I don't know. Uh, but if I could talk to this person, they probably are closer to me than it even sounds like. Um, but I've said it before, folks. Gold is a piece of insurance. It is not the solution. And those of you that think it is are in for a world of hurt. I had another person that emailed me this week and said that um, the Spartans, for instance, didn't even use gold. Back when everybody else used gold, and gold was the answer to everything. Spartans used iron. Um, which is pretty interesting to me. But the thing about gold is you can't eat it. In fact, it is a toxin. If you eat it, it will kill you. You eat enough gold, you will die. Did you know that? But it has the longest track record of value of any commodity on the face of the planet. So if you're going to use something for insurance, it makes a lot of sense. But I like the temperance here from Tao, and I think it's something we all need to keep. Uh, here's a quick one. Chuck sends me this one, and it's just, I'm gonna just read it off to you, and let you guys realize how insane we are as preppers to store things, you know? Because, you know, it's not like it's a good investment or anything. Six month price percentages, uh, moves on some of the things people need to live. And here it is. Um, cotton, 125.7% in the last six months up. Sugar, 82% up. Corn, 59% up. Coffee, 41% up. Rice is up 40%. Oats, 36%. Copper, 36%. Lumber, 33%. Oil, 25%. I, I just want to go through that again. I'm just going to double them because these would be annualized numbers. Uh, so the annualized return, you know, using six months factored, cotton, 250%. Sugar, 160%. Corn, 120%. Coffee, uh, 82%. Rice, 80%. Oats, uh, 75, 76, 77% somewhere in there. Uh, copper, same thing, about 77%. Lumber, 66%. Oil, 50%. And why did I annualize them? Because your financial liar, I mean financial advisor, always annualizes everything, right? So, all I'm saying is that what we've been saying for a long time with this show is that when we store food, it's something we're going to consume at some point in our lives anyway. It has a constant flow upward, and that our money spent on our food storage is better spent than most of the money that the average American doesn't even think about that they have an autopilot 401k for. It, it, it's absolutely amazing to me that anybody could object to food storage with numbers like I just read to you, with inflation like we've experienced, not just this year, but the constant state of inflation forever, for as long as people have been alive in the United States of America. We get the oldest living American, and we can see inflation from the day they were born till now every year, especially on food and general commodities. So all I'm saying, folks, is you're doing the right thing when you're storing this stuff. You're doing the same thing that somebody like um, Southwest Airline does 
by locking fuel prices in today so that they can sell, sell cheaper airfare tomorrow by using contracts on the fuel. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And your play is a lot safer than theirs. Gas and oil go up and down a lot more than food. Food is more of a straight-up type of thing. You, you know, Southwest can get burned over six months on a fuel contract. The worst you're going to do is breaking even on food you were going to buy anyway. Anyway, there's a full article that those numbers came from on the Daily Reckoning. I'll put a link in today's show notes. But just know this, folks. When you're storing food and you're storing other commodities, uh, you're doing the right thing, no matter what mainstream media may tell you and about painting you as an extremist or a fear monger or anything like that. If everything continues the way that it is and there's no big disaster... With returns like, you know, 100% and up across a year, 80% and up on common food items, I think you're doing better than your 401k. Just saying. Let's go ahead and take another one. Here, here's one. I, I don't really feel qualified to answer this. I'm going to give you my thoughts on it, but I think that there's a lot of bullshit going on about this right now that's making this bigger than it is. And um, I see a lot of warmongering around this. You guys can think what you want. In fact, I want to know what you think because I, I got to be honest with you, and you'll understand where I'm going here when I read the question. I am turning myself and my show so much more internally focused than globally focused at this point. I don't believe that we're going to make the biggest difference by being chanting in streets and rioting and, and, and rioting our congressmen. I think that we make the biggest difference. And I've always believed this, by the way we live our lives. And I look to these external things more for internal motivation than for external angst, external anger, or even external action. We need to take care of ourselves because the world is going to change. And the big problem that I think most people have is instead of saying the world is going to change and we need to be prepared for change, they say, how do we keep the world the way that it is? And what we need to realize, especially as Americans, there's a lot of people that keeping the world the way it is is really bad for. There's a lot of people that are in miserable circumstances. And our desire for stability and comfort is not sufficient, in my opinion, to keep them in abject poverty or misery or totalitarianism. Nor do I, though, want, you know, a totalitarian-minded people coming to their first glimpse of liberty, which is only 10% of what I want, saying, okay, well, we're going to move to liberty, but you move to us. So now this will make sense to you. Uh, this comes from RG, and RG says, uh, with things breaking out in Tunisia, Egypt, Jordan, and Iraq, do you think we're looking at the beginnings of something along the lines of an Arab super state? I've been turning this over my mind in the past week, and it's what I've come up with. Thanks, RG. Um, I don't know. I think that Egypt now is going to make one or two, uh, take path one or two. Path one, a true democracy in Egypt run along the lines of a modern republic with a coalition-style government similar to what we've left in Iraq um, by their people of their own choosing that's hopefully even more freedom-based than what's in Iraq today. And that is a new era for the Egyptian people uh, with even more secularism, and I say that in a positive way. Um, if you look at pictures of Egypt from 1968, you see a hell of a lot less women covered up than you do there today. 
under what is supposed to be a modern, friendly dictator, the way we looked at this ass clown that's been running the show there for almost 30 years now. Um, and that would be the best outcome. The other outcome is Iran, a place where extreme religious fanatics control everything. And women are oppressed, and people of alternative faiths are oppressed, and that's the other road. Now, how involved our CIA is and all this other stuff, I don't really give a shit, because I'll tell you what it's going to come down to now. The Egyptian people. It's their liberty to win or to lose at this point. And, I mean, I am tired of hearing what the United States should be doing. You know what I think the United States should be doing? If you've listened to the show for any length of time, you should probably know my answer. Nothing! We need to stay the hell out of it. It's not our business. Even if the, the, the outcome is something somewhat positive toward us, if we influence it, we delegitimize it. Our stance needs to be that the people of Egypt need to determine the future of Egypt. If that means you pay a dollar more for gas, I don't give a shit. I really don't. I'm sorry. I don't want to. I know that's bad for us. But why should it be at the expense of someone else's liberty? So that's the problem we've had in this country for so many decades. We've been taught that our liberty is so precious that oppressing others is acceptable. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's congruent with the ideals of the founders of our country. I don't believe that's congruent with the ideals of people like Jefferson, who is probably my favorite founding father. And it's not congruent for me. So will it turn into an Arab super state? That's a long road. And that's something being used by people that want more excuse to blow shit up and bomb more things. Is it possible? Sure. It's also possible that you're going to find a leprechaun to lead you to the end of a rainbow tomorrow. Not very probable, but yeah, maybe those folk tales were right. You know, but, but let's be a little bit more realistic. It's highly possible that you could go swimming off the coast of Hawaii and a giant tiger shark could eat you. But millions and millions and millions of people will go swimming off the coast of Hawaii and not worry about that because the odds are so low. I think we need to not worry about this as a specific issue that we're going to get involved with, we need to see it as another indicator that the global climate's changing and we individually need to be prepared. Good question, though, RG. Thanks for that one. Um, two in one day. I'm not sure. Maybe he sent me two questions and this is the one I pulled out. I'm sure you will dig this. Get it, dig. And it's an that's an article on Reuters. And I'll read parts of it to you anyway. That's a pretty encouraging, positive up one. Rebel gardeners wage veggie war on Buenos Aires. Forget potted plants and privet hedges. A group of Buenos Aires artists, that's hard to say, Buenos Aires artists want to make the Argentine capital a free-for-all kitchen garden, turning neglected parks and verges into a verdant vegetable patch. Uh, following in the footsteps of griddle or gardeners who have been scattering flower seeds in vacant lots and roadsides in cities such as London, New York, since the 70s, the Atrochorus group is taking the concept a step further. Armed with vegetable seeds and seed bombs. I love seed bombs, by the way, folks. Seeds packed with mud for throwing in the neglected urban spaces. Their goal is to provide organic food for city residents. We want to make the city prettier, but in a different way. The zucchini can't, plant can be as beautiful as an orchid, but it can be eaten, said Arturochorus coordinator Judith Villa Mayer after watering vegetables planted next to a parking lot. 
Our goal is for people to find carrots, cougarettes, and quinoa while they take a stroll. We want to show them how to care for care after the crops, she said. The Alta Culturals, I can't just, I can't say that word, folks. If anybody knows how to pronounce it, uh, let me know. Uh, whose name roughly translates to Art, Art, Artie Farmers. The Artie Farmers. I'm going to call them that from now on now. Uh, have thrown thousands of seed bombs in and around the sprawling capital city since they started meeting in 2009. Although providing free vegetables amid soaring food prices in Argentina lies at the, Argentina lies at the heart of the group's, uh, God, these guys have all these weird words in here. Anyway, lies at their, the heart of their mission. Uh, they call their raids performances and aim to inspire people to shun supermarkets and go organic. The group runs workshops in, in schools and members encourage residents to save fruit and vegetable seeds and grow their own and nurture the fledgling vegetable gardens. I should come back in a few weeks and see how the plants are doing. I hope someone gives them some water here, says Sol Utricia, a 29-year-old Mexican student after planting cord seedlings in a rundown public garden. Group members say they're getting residents to pick up the baton as their biggest challenge. So in other words, they're going out and doing this, and they need people like that live right outside the place. Like, you look outside, there it is outside of your apartment. So, you know, waddle your butt down there and water it once a week. Um, uh, a plot in the Bohemian neighborhood of San to Limo, where the planted quinoa, carrots, and avocados a few months ago has become strewn with garbage. Ugh. We have to clean the litter away and encourage them to look after plants, Villa Mayor said. It shouldn't be strange to see a neighbor watering a public garden, food, vegetables, uh, that is a universal language. Guerrilla gardeners have traditionally operated under the cover of darkness to avoid detection by local authorities, but the Altacura told the, the artsy farmers say the police have never troubled them. And that doing raids during the daytime helps raise public awareness. Only once was I stopped by a policeman. He asked me whether there were marijuana seeds in the bomb. I said no and gave him one. He gave it a sniff and said we could continue, said artist uh, Martin Mainstrillo. Uh, so I'll put a link to this article so you can read it. There's a, a, a slideshow there to, to check out as well. Um, but this is one of these things where I say, you know what? Maybe all this lie about how uh, how free we are in America... Maybe there are other nations like Argentina where people are maybe a little more free in certain ways. I think you'd have a lot more police arresting people doing this here, but I'll tell you what, I think we should do it anyway. And there's a reason that I put this story right after a question about an Arab super state and what's going to happen to Egypt and all. Doing what these people are doing in Buenos Aires will do more for liberty and independence and to actually make something happen than watching Fox News or CNBC or whatever it is every day and getting angry and getting fuming and worrying and buying gold and sticking it in a box and listening to Alex Jones and getting upset about the legitimate points he makes. There's plenty of them there. This will do more. This will do more to spread the idea of liberty and independence. See, right now they're dealing with the thing where the neighbor won't water the plant. People throw garbage in there and they're just... Keep it on, keep it on. You know what? If they keep doing it long enough, the neighbor will water. People will stop throwing garbage. And when somebody throws garbage, somebody else will say, Hey, jackass, I think you dropped that. Uh, this is something I want to challenge every single person out there listening to me to do from now on. There's nothing to do with food but litter. Whenever you're in a parking lot or anywhere and you see somebody throw something on the ground, I want you to say the following words to them. Hey, buddy or hey, lady, whatever it is. I think you dropped that. You didn't mean to drop that there, did you? I don't want you to say, hey, jackass, you're littering, pick it up. That starts fights. 
I want you to guilt them into doing the right thing. Because you know what? Every time I've done that, you know what I've gotten from a person? Oh, oh, yeah, uh, 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 and then they pick it up. It is not okay for people to throw trash in an area that's public any more than it is for them to throw it on your front yard. If I came to your front yard and tossed a couple beer cans on it, would you tolerate it? No. Well, this is your country. Don't tolerate it there either. But see what these gorillas are doing, these green gorillas. They're not just preventing the trash, cleaning it up, taking that onto them. They're improving and beautifying the space, and they're making it valuable to... See, this is what they're doing. Instead of growing it just for themselves, if you could actually get the neighborhood to start going, hey, there's food there, and we can all have some of it if we just take care of it, they'll value the space as though it was their front yard. Do you want to make a difference? Things like this are how you make a difference. Signing another internet petition? Please don't send me internet petitions. I've signed exactly zero internet petitions in the last two years. Do you know why? No one cares. No one cares how many people sign an internet petition. You know who does care? The guy hosting it with the ads on it. That's the only one that really cares. The people you're upset with, they're not going to read your internet petition. They're not going to trust the number anyway. One of their lackeys is going to say, oh, it's a bot, even though they don't know what a bot is. And they're going to believe it. They're going to go on doing whatever they're going to do. You plant a seed, you make it grow, and you show somebody else how that works, and you make them care, and you make them do it too, now we got something. Now I'll add one thing to it, be an armed farmer. There is a real place for real revolution if it comes to it, but if we do enough of things like this, it won't come to it. Be prepared for it anyway. I don't want you to think I'm soft on this. I don't want you to think that everybody, everything can be solved with a flower. You know, there was a, a show, if I can find it, I'll link to it on YouTube, by this guy named Louis Thoreau. He's a British guy, and he would go out and basically play the fool and make jackasses out of people. It's some pretty funny stuff. Well, he tried to do it with a bunch of survivalists up in, uh, in uh, Montana and Idaho. And eventually he found the freaks he was looking for, but the first people he found were people that were part of Bo Greitz's um, Almost Heaven. And he, he realized that these people just wanted to be left alone and maybe had some extreme views here and there, but basically they were good people just trying to make a living and trying to stay the hell out of everybody's way. And instead of doing what he usually did, which was make fun of them, he painted a pretty good picture of them. And he was talking to the one guy, and the guy said he used to be a hippie. And now he's got guns, and he's up here living on a survivalist compound and all. And he said, uh, he said, so you, you know, his British way, you know, so he used to put flowers in guns. What happened? He said, well, I got older and wiser and I figured out that it was better to put bullets in guns than flowers. So I'm of that mindset, but I'm also going to tell you that when we grow our own food, it is the most revolutionary act an individual can take. Nothing compares to it. Nothing at all. That's why it's a big part of the revolution is you. Let's take another uh, one of your emails. Quick one here uh, Eric sent to me. Uh, Eric that always sends me cool stuff about Wikilinks. This is on Yahoo News. Most of you have probably heard this by now if you've been listening to the news at all. Uh, Wikileaks. Saudis are running out of oil. The latest startling revelation to come via documents leaked to Julian Assange's muckracking website and published by The Guardian should give pause to every suburban SUV driver. I uh, see it's you evil SUV drivers. It really is. It's not like this affects everybody or anything. 
roll eyes. Uh, U.S. officials think Saudi Arabia is over-promising on its capacity to supply oil to the fuel-thirsty world. That sets up a scenario, the documents show, whereby the Saudis could dramatically under-deliver on output by as soon as next year, sending fuel prices soaring. See, but it only affects SUV drivers. Uh, the cables detail a meeting between U.S. diplomat and Saadad Al-Hussein, a geologist and former head of exploration for Saudi oil monopoly, Aramico. In 2007, Hussein told American official that the Saudis are unlikely to keep their target oil output of 12.5 million barrels per day of output in order to keep prices stable. Hussein also indicated that the Saudi producers are likely to hit peak oil, at the point at which global output hits a high mark as early as 2012. That means, in essence, that it will be all downhill from there for the enormous Saudi oil industry. According to Al-Husani, the crux of the issue is twofold. First, it is possible that the Saudi reserves are not as bountiful as sometimes described, and the timeline for their production is not as unrestrained as Aramico and energy optimists would like to portray. One of the cables reads, while Al-Husani fundamentally contradicts the Aramico oil company line, he is no doomsday theorist. His pedigree, experience, and outlook demand that his predictions be thoughtfully considered. Interesting, isn't it? Um, here's what I want to point out. If you go back into the archives of the Survival Podcast in the fall of 2008, I told you that the Saudis were uh, promising more oil than they could deliver. We didn't need a leak of super secret government cables to uh, pull this off. Uh, this has been known for a long time. People have been saying flat out the Saudis are lying. And I told you the Saudis are lying, that it's in their best interest to lie because it gives them more control as long as people believe they have all the oil we need to keep the supply stable. Let me explain to you how this really works. We always hear about the OPEC cartel, and because cartel is a negative word, and because your media and your government wants you to believe certain things, we're led to believe that these guys are the bad guys. That what they're doing is they're making oil artificially high. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. What OPEC actually does is keep the price of oil, oil relatively stable. And the biggest player in this cartel as far as production is Saudi Arabia. So what happens is what, when for any reason, either increased demand or some kind of disaster somewhere, uh, or redu reduced production or failure to meet forecast, when any other member of OPEC can't make their quota, to put out enough oil to keep the price stable, the Saudis, having the biggest reserve, ramp up their production and produce more. Meaning, in theory, Saudi Arabia could be producing more all the time, and this would drive the price of oil down. Okay, That's where the message that they keep the oil artificially high comes from. But in reality, what they're doing is that if you just keep doing that, You make oil so cheap, no one can afford to pump it, and eventually the cycle reverses. But, of course, the other thing is Saudi Arabia uses up all of their reserves faster, and they don't have any longevity. What they really do, the, the, other, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, is they keep the oil legitimate, you know, re, re, uh, rel, or, what's the word I'm looking for? Not reliably, but priced at a point that makes sense for the global economy. Okay? By keeping it down. Because whenever there's shortfalls anywhere else, everybody turns to Saudi Arabia and they produce a few more billion barrels. A few more million barrels, anyway. And pretty much they've been saying, oh, don't worry about it, we got it covered. For years and years and years, we can keep doing this. If one of these smaller countries completely falls off the map, we can just make it up for them. Uh, maybe not. 
So the Saudis are headed for peak oil possibly as early as 2012, according to one of their top geologists that works for their government. And everybody wants to murder Julian Assange for leaking this information. Oh, my God. Don't you think this is something we might want to know? We might want to prepare for? Because apparently when somebody like Jack Spierko says it in 2008, it doesn't have any authority. So hopefully for the sheep, it now has some authority. So what do we do? Keep doing what I always said. Keep doing what I Focus on yourself. Gas could go up in price. Deal with it. All right? You could screw up our economy. Deal with it. There will be change. Again, I, I want today's theme to be there will be change, and it's not up to us to prevent it. Other nations, other people have a right to liberty and freedom and to participate in the free market economy of the world, too. It is not okay for us to keep people living in huts so that we can set our air conditioner at 72. That doesn't mean, like Barack Obama, I want to take away your ability to set your air conditioner at 72. I'm just telling you it may cost more. Not because of government controls or cap and tax, but because we're not the world's police force and we're not allowed, we do it anyway, we should not be trying to make everything stay exactly the way that it is for our own benefit. So, so I'll tell you what, I think there's a lot of work to be done in advancing technology. And I think it's going to solve a lot of the problems long term. But there's going to be a flux in the middle. And you're going to be in there. We are going to live in that flux. Every generation lives through some flux. This is a unique one. This is one of the greatest challenges humanity has ever had. But it doesn't have to be doomsday. But we do have to be prepared. That's why we talk about the things we talk about every day, folks. Okay, this one's from Brent Erner in Prince Edward Island, and he doesn't mind when I give away his name. And this is an interesting one. It dovetails right into what we just talked about. Um, Brent says, short, pure electric cars may not be useful in cold climates. Long. Comments on how long batteries in electric cars will last once the heat gets turned on. Even at 1,500 watts, that's 1,500 amps DC, uh, is used to heat the vehicle that could be used to run the car. Ergo, shortening the range considerably. Also see this below, and I'm going to save his other link because he's totally unrelated for next week's show. Um, but it's about a supermarket chicken harboring a superbug. Great, huh? You'll have to hang on your seats till Monday next week for that one. Anyway, uh, on the electric cars, something I hadn't thought about. Something I hadn't thought about. See, when you're running an internal combustion engine, there's a lot of heat there. Heating your car with a gas motor is easy. In fact, it's more along the lines of you have to make sure that you don't heat your car when you don't want to. It's so easy to vent heat from the motor uh, into the car. If you don't get this, drive your car down the road. A couple hundred yards even. Pull it back in your, your, your uh, driveway. Open the hood and put your hand under the hood and feel the heat coming off. See, with an electric motor, you don't get all that heat. Now, that's good in some ways. There's a lot less heat to dissipate. There's a lot less uh, requirements of a cooling system there. But when we want to heat, you think about this. The thing that draws the most power of anything that humans use is any electric heat source. Electric ranges, an electric uh, heat pump for your house heating hot water with electricity. Heat is the most demanding thing on electricity there is. And what Brent's saying is, well, what happens when I take my plug-in Nissan Leaf and try to drive it around Canada in the wintertime and not freeze to death, especially at night when I don't have solar gain from the windows? It kind of ties into the Saudi thing, doesn't it, about peak oil and the electric car will save us and what have you? I, I, I hate to admit I never thought of this, and I don't really know. 
And if anybody has any sources for me, please email me, jack at survivalpodcast.com and put car heating in the subject line. For any information or research that's been done about electrics and uh, high electric hybrids, uh, like the uh, like the new Ford, I, I can't remember what it's called now, or the no the Chevy Volt, Chevy Volt, little bitty gas motor that charges the batteries when you run out of power, mostly runs off electricity, 350 mile range. What happens if it's uh, 25 degrees out and I turn the heater on? What happens to my range? Any any research on that? I'd love to see it. Just something to think about, folks, with uh, technology not always being the answer, at least not at first. All right, uh, last one today comes from Angela. Two questions. I'll do them separately. I want people to listen very carefully to my advice on the first one uh, this time, so no, I don't get a hundred emails about how you're going to kill yourself doing this. Um, what is the best way to get rid of established poison ivy? I've heard I have several huge vines growing on a fence surrounding my new garden spot, and would rather not use a herbicide if I can avoid it. Okay, first I'm going to tell you probably the best thing to do with uh, poison ivy is use a poison ivy specific herbicide. I know you don't want to. I understand that you don't want to. I don't want to either. But it's probably going to give you the best results. Cutting the vines back and uh, spot treating only the root crown is probably the best way to go. When you cut vines back with poison ivy, you need to use some type of protection. When you remove it, it needs to be packaged up and gotten rid of it. It either needs to be tossed out in the woods somewhere and allowed to rot, or it needs to go into garbage bags or what have you. Don't burn it. Burning poison ivy can cause severe problems. I'm being very clear about that this time so I can give another piece of advice that works very well with poison ivy. That I gave before, and people send me all this information about not burning it. I'm not saying to burn the poison ivy. If you cut the poison ivy off at the root crown, so that there's nothing exposed above ground, and pull back some of the earth, and you use a flamethrower torch, a, a scorching tool, to scorch the roots in the ground, wearing a respirator, you're not burning it, it's not going to sit there and burn, but you're going to destroy the cells. And it may work. The problem is it probably won't because some of those roots are so deep. And as long as there's anything left alive in the root system, it's probably going to come back. This is why the best thing is a herbicide. And what you do is you, you treat your vines and you every time you see them sprout, you cut them off and you treat again right where they're sprouting. And you just keep doing it, and you have to basically outlast the root system. The other thing you can do is treat them heavily with a herbicide, and then lay something very, very thick down. Not Forget even cardboard. Cut yourself a piece of quarter-inch plywood uh, that's much larger than the, the, the area uh, that the vines are emerging from. Place that down and mulch over top of it, and leave it there for at least a season. At that point, you've probably killed it off with uh, robbing it of solar uh, energy. These are the only ways that I know to do this. The best way is going to be a herbicide. Spot treating. And see, here's the thing. As organic gardeners, we don't want to use any herbicides. The, the problem, though, isn't that a herbicide exists. is that it's used as a blanket solution to all problems instead of for specific applications. The reality is that poison ivy is a very aggressive, invasive plant uh, that has nothing going for it. There's nothing that it does for us at all, except make us itch and sick. And there's no edible part of it. It doesn't fix nitrogen. Uh, it, it certainly has a purpose in the ecosystem, and I don't think we should be trying to eradicate it when it's growing out in the woods. 
And even if it's on my property, if I have five acres and three of it are left in full forest and there's some poison ivy out there, I may cut it back from some walking paths or whatever, but I'm not really going to worry about it. But in my backyard, in my garden, hell yeah, it's got to go. And a herbicide is the way to do that. Again, I know you don't like it, but if it's used in one specific area, it's used according to the instructions, and it's used to eliminate one plant, and once that plant is eliminated, it's not used anymore, um, it, it, the, the environment can deal with it. Uh, I also can tell you this. If you don't give it some shade, it doesn't do well in full sun. We had this huge bank that was behind our property in Pennsylvania, where my dad still lives today. And uh, it was covered with trees and bush and, and everything. And we decided, other than a couple big trees that were up there, we went up with a chainsaw one year, my dad, my, my uncle, and myself, and we completely cleared the hill. We let it grow wildflowers and things like that. And when we first started doing it, there was poison ivy everywhere in this one area. And uh, my uncle and my father both get poison ivy. I don't. Unless my skin's broken, I get no reaction whatsoever from poison ivy. So I took what we called a swisher, which is basically a, a cutter. It looks like a golf club with a blade on it. And I went up there and I cut the poison ivy to the ground and I raked it up and uh, I did wear gloves and long sleeves, but I really didn't really worry about it very much. And I hauled a few bags of it back and, and, and just kind of dumped it uh, down in a stripping bank and let it go down there to rot. And uh, then we went up there and we cut it down. And they got, the guys got a little bit of poison ivy, but not much. And we cut everything down. And we were worried it would grow back. Once all of the vegetation was removed and there was direct sunlight on that hill, I never saw poison ivy grow up there again. Now, this, this, this hill is east-facing. And it just gets nailed with the sun all morning until late in the afternoon. And it took that type of sunlight to do it. But um, poison ivy is a shade plant. And if it's in a shaded area, if you can remove the shading without taking away something like if you have a beautiful oak or something you want there. But if you can eliminate the shade, the sun will pretty much take care of it. Uh, and then we have one more question from the same person here. And again, this is from Angela. And what she says is, is there any danger in growing edibles in close proximity to the road? I've heard that fruit and vegetables can, can become toxic if too close to a regularly traveled roadway. Um... This is going to go right up there with their cyanide and grapes, and there is toxins in white mushrooms. If you're really worried about that, then you have to move away from all of those roadways because you're going to breathe in more toxins from that roadway in the air than the plant will ever assimilate from the air. Here's the thing about plants. Once too much of a toxin goes into them, they don't grow well anymore, and they die. The biggest thing that comes off the roadways is CO2. That's good for plants. In spite of what Al Gore will tell you, it's a necessary, it is the staff of life. It's only 0.037%, or 0.36%, or whatever, 0.38, somewhere in there. One-third of 1% 1 of the atmosphere. And without it, life could not exist on the planet. Period. So that's the biggest thing. Now there's toxins from, I mean, no one wants to, even if there was no CO2 in there that would kill you from asphyxiation, no one wants to breathe what comes out of a tailpipe. But the reality is there's so many more things out there that are toxic to us than the air from the roadway that the plant might absorb. And if we're planting a very diverse garden with lots of species, 
we're going to mitigate that as a whole anyway. It's certainly not something I am going to worry about. I'll put it to you this way. The big, beautiful green pepper that's not organically grown, or maybe even the way things are done now is organically grown, at the supermarket that most people would eat and consider healthy, is probably got more problems for you, bio, you know, biologically than the big green pepper that you grew in your backyard that cars happen to drive by. Because other than the air, you know everything that went into that pepper. I'm not going to worry about it. I don't think you should either. Does that mean that, you know, in the optimal place to grow food would be in the middle of a highway medium that's constantly surrounded with it? No. But I think we can get freaking paranoid, folks, and we need to not be paranoid. Our world is not perfect, and we cannot live in a germ-free bubble. And if you expect to do that, you've got some real problems. It's not going to happen. And I'll tell you what it does to the extreme. My father had a friend, one of his few real friends named Tony, who, who worked for him when he had his gas station and his tire shop uh, when we were in Florida. And I remember Tony, when I first met him, he was about 190 pounds, about six foot tall, in great shape, looked like a mountain man, had a big beard. He was from Pennsylvania. He grew up and went to school with my father. That's why they both ended up working together down in Florida. It was one of the few people my father trusted. Now he started, and this was in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s, when all this nutrition stuff started coming out. He started reading these books about things he couldn't eat. And the first thing he did was he stopped eating meat and he became a vegetarian. But at least he ate, you know, eggs and cheese and milk and things like that. And he actually seemed to be in pretty good, he lost a couple pounds, probably a couple pounds he could have. And, uh, you know, you don't need as much meat when you're fully grown as when... The, 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 the vegan thing, I'm the, ve the vegetarian, not vegan, the vegetarian thing I'm fine with for adults, children need meat in their developmental stages. And, uh, you're going to harm their development. And I don't care what anybody says and get as mad as you want. Children need meat during their development. And uh, there's plenty of research to prove that. But once you're a man, if you're eating things like cheese and, and, and eggs and things like that, you can live relatively healthy. But it didn't stop there. Okay, then the next thing is the, the cheese is bad, and he stopped eating the cheese, and then the eggs are bad, he stopped eating the eggs. Well, then, you know, he's eat, you know, he's not getting anything fried, but the guy really wasn't doing his research very well, because my dad sees him eating potato chips, and he says, I thought you didn't eat fried things. Tony says, they're just potatoes. He said, how do you think they make them? Do you think they boil them? This is before the day of the baked chip, right? So he stops eating potato chips, probably one of the worst things that ever happened. And then, in the end, in the end, This guy was boiling things like broccoli and cabbage, throwing away the food and drinking the water, and he thought that's all it was safe left to drink. And he ended up in a hospital being fed through a rectal feeding tube because his body had lost the ability to digest food. And he's doing a lot better today. He eats better today. He's, he's still a vegetarian, but he eats, you know, some, some protein products and things like that. But, th but that, and I know that some people out there that are going to be worried about something like taking a shower in an unfiltered water, or are going to be worried about growing a tomato next to a road, are going to say, I'm not going to go to that extreme. But that's where it leads if you keep doing it. The reality is your body is an amazing machine, and that our world is full of viruses and bacteria and toxin. And a healthy human can, can take an onslaught of that every day. We don't get sick because of viruses and bacteria. We get sick because our immune system is weakened and the virus or bacteria is now capable of doing something it otherwise was not capable of doing. And that's reality. That's why two people can live in the same house. Neither one got a flu shot, one gets the flu and one doesn't. 
because the other one's immune system managed to fight off. They certainly were exposed. Happens to husband and wife. They sleep in the same bed. Sometimes both get sick. Sometimes only one gets sick. Doesn't even mean one was healthier than the other. It means on that day, during that exposure, during that period of time, their immune system was better able to fight that one illness. And if we walk around as paranoid individuals freaking out about everything from a plastic container to the shower, we don't have much left to live for. So what we need to do is have balance in all things, and we minimize things. I won't eat GMO corn products. Why? Because I know damn well that's bad. It's it's proven. It's toxic. It's not natural. I'm not going to do it. And occasionally I go to on the border and I eat some corn chips. You know what? I bet you 90 to nothing there's GMO corn in there. Does that mean I'm a hypocrite? No, it means I'm a realist. It means that I know that I prefer that it wasn't there, but occasionally when I sit down and they lay the chips in front of me, I'm going to dip it in some salsa and eat it. That means I'm going to destroy, and it means when I'm on the border where my kid works talking to him, most of what I eat isn't really good for me. But I don't eat three meals a day there seven days a week. Now maybe once every other month, or once every other week we go there. And sometimes we don't eat anything at all. We just have a drink or two. All things in moderation. And I really hope people take that one to heart today. Don't live a paranoid life. Don't try to make sure there's no toxins whatsoever ever touching your body because it ain't going to happen. As soon as you walk out the door, you're in contact with germs and viruses and toxins. Oh my! Your body can deal with it. What we don't need to do is be stupid about it and overload the body with these things. That's why changing the genetic structure of our food is a dumb idea. That's why we need to try to avoid that. That's why we need to grow our own food where we are in control of it. That's why we need to minimize the intake of corn in our lives from this point forward because getting away from GMO corn now is almost impossible due to cross-pollination. But we will never lead completely toxic-free lifestyles. And I'll tell you what, if we did, we'd probably get sick and die eventually. Our bodies are designed to deal with stress. It's about balancing that stress, whether it's biological or psychological, it doesn't matter. The human being is not meant to live in a completely stress-free environment. They're meant to utilize stress and move away from it. Is it just like a hot stove? Touch it, it burns you, don't do that again. The problem is we don't listen. We get into stressful jobs and the, the stress keeps elevating and chasing the dollar, we allow it to elevate. We take the next promotion we know we really don't want. We have a food source that we know is in, in, that is toxic and we keep eating it anyway because it's cheap. If we balance things, we can deal with it. And growing a tomato next to a road, that to me is not out of balance. With that, I will sign off today. And I want to make sure that you've heard the big message today. You are your own answer. And growing your own food is a bigger revolution than anything you'll ever do with a sign. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Show you.